Support for today's podcast is brought to you by FS Investments. At FS Investments, smart never settles, especially when it comes to helping investors find income in a low-yielding and volatile market. Let FS Investments help you access alternative sources of income and growth for your investors. Visit fsinvestments.com slash deadcelebrities to help your clients achieve their financial goals. Ask your advisor about FS Investments, including any potential risks. This is not an offer to buy securities. Welcome to the Dead Celebrities Podcast. In this podcast, we break down high-profile celebrity estate planning cases for advisors and their clients. Most celebrity estate catastrophes are based on the same issues that everyday people face, just with the volume turned up. Our goal is to identify and extract the individual estate planning issues that lie at the heart of each story. We then discuss what advisors should expect and how to avoid common pitfalls. Hosted by WealthManagement.com Senior Editor David Lenick. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of the WealthManagement.com's Dead Celebrity Podcast. My name is David Lenick, and I'm a senior editor with Wealth Management and Trust in Estates. For those of you who are new to the podcast, each episode focuses on a single celebrity estate, be it a planning snafu, a familial fight, or even just a good example of the power of proper planning. And from that high-profile and often ridiculous example, Myself and a guest attempt to boil down examples of some lessons that advisors can use with their more typical clients. The idea being that celebrity estates, though the details are often more bombastic, generally face the same obstacles and issues as those of regular people, just with the volume turned up, uh, making them interesting and valuable case studies. My guest today is Jackie Bevilacqua. She's an associate at law firm Katzi Corins LLP in New York City, and her practice is focused primarily on estate planning for high net worth and ultra high net worth families and individuals. She's also a fellow graduate of Fordham Law, so hooray for that. Uh, welcome, Jackie. Hi, Dave. The yeah, celebrity estate we're going to focus on today is that of Adam Yauch, better known as MCA of the Beastie Boys. For those unfamiliar with them, the Beastie Boys are a legendary trio of hip-hop pioneers known for their idiosyncratic and party-loving personalities, and, in a bit of a dichotomy, their intense and very public social activism, particularly in the area of Tibetan independence from mainland China. So the same men who brought us You've Got a Fight for Your Right to Party also founded the Tibetan Freedom Concert, a series of Live Aid-esque eclectic music festivals in support of Tibetan independence that ran from 1996 to 2014. Uh, to give an idea of these concerts, import both the exiled Tibetan Prime Minister and the 14th Dalai Lama himself spoke in person at the May 2012 concert in Vienna. Uh, they also stick out as three white Jewish guys in a genre where that's not a particularly common combination of traits. Uh, you don't really hear prestigious New York City Jewish day school, Ramaz, name-dropped by other hip-hop artists. So suffice it to say, the Beastie Boys were a unique package from top to bottom. Yauch sadly passed away in 2012 at age 47 after a battle with salivary cancer. Only a few days, actually, after the Beastie Boys were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. His will left $6.4 million in a trust for his wife, Dechen Yauch, I'm hoping I got right, and their 13-year-old daughter, while also giving Dechen the right to sell and manage his artistic property. There's nothing really groundbreaking here. 
However, that's not the only time his will mentions his artistic property, and that's where things get interesting. At the end of a will, in a portion seemingly added by hand, uh, he writes that, in no event may my image or name or any music or any artistic property created by me be used by, for advertising purposes. Now, on its face, this doesn't seem too outlandish. Celebrities look to protect their image and work all the time. Uh, we even spoke about this very topic at length during our second episode about Robin Williams. This one is a bit different, however, in that there are three primary members of the Beastie Boys. So, Yao was not the only one who owned the copyright to the group's music. As such, if his family were to try and enforce this provision, things likely wouldn't work out in their favor. So, either the attorneys who drafted the will did a less-than-stellar job by including a clause they should have known probably wouldn't hold up, or Yao simply overruled them and included that bit anyway. Given the handwritten nature of the clause, I'm going to guess it's probably the second thing. At the end of the day, it doesn't seem like anything has really come of this odd edition yet. And given that the Beastie Boys song Sabotage was recently used in several of the rebooted Star Trek films, it seems like maybe nothing will. So what's there really to talk about here? It's easy. High net worth clients can be difficult to manage. Many aren't used to being told no, and they may clash against the advice of their advisors, even if it's in their best interest which can obviously put those of us bound by a best interest of the client standard into a bit of a no-win situation. Some clients may even go a bit rogue, as may have happened in this case. That sort of action on the part of a client can have dire consequences for a carefully laid plan, even if that's not really what happened here. So, Jackie, what do you think about this whole Adam Yow situation? Well, I think first off, um, one sort of point of clarification is that the issue of publicity rights was addressed by his attorneys in his will and was typed up in the clause that is relevant here in his will. What was added um, was the copyright issue, the music and artistic property. And that's sort of where the uh, potential for problems or for litigation comes up. For celebrities, publicity clauses are quite common in their wills. However, this additional copyright clause, uh, music and artistic property, um, it was seemingly added as an afterthought. Uh, I think that although this hasn't led to litigation, and it probably hasn't led to litigation because it seems like from the start of the group, or at least from the heyday of the group, everyone was on board with not using their music or their images for product ads. Um, I think it seems that Adam Yauk's executor, his wife, uh, is also on board with that same um, objective and that's why no litigation has come out of this because essentially it's a well you know what we meant issue however uh you don't want a will to come down to well this is what we meant or you know what we meant because that's something that anyone can challenge who has an interest in the will um the point for people who aren't you know dealing with publicity rights or copyrights which are fairly uncom uncommon assets um publicity rights more so than i think copyrights is, like you said, how do you manage clients? Um, how do you meet demanding expectations for people who have spent their entire life accumulating these assets that they're going to give away? Um, how do you meet those expectations while still directing the clients towards an estate plan that's going to work and that can't be torn apart or uh, picked apart in court? And it's interesting here, if I had to guess, 
just looking at this particular case, um, it seems like he was kind of just trying to make a statement, right? Like he, he seems like he knew that they were all on the same page already. And he probably knew that this wasn't something that was going to be legally right. you know, hold up, but he knew it would be public and he wanted it on sort of on the record as his big public statement about how he feels. And that's beautiful in a way, but uh, a will in a state plan is not necessarily the place for that. Or if it is it, doing it in a different way is maybe yeah. a better approach. Mm-hmm. Um, but that ties into what you know, what we're really going to talk about is sort of you have a high profile client who is strong willed and wants to make such a statement, um, and they you know maybe they go a bit rogue and, and they they write this in. I mean, how is an advisor supposed to handle that sort of client? How do you deal delicately? You know, after we are service industry after right. all, right? At, at the end of the day, well, you know, but in the same vein, we have you know responsibilities to to help and advise to the best of our abilities, and that can kind of clash. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's important to remember where all clients are coming from, which again, whether you have $50,000 at your death or $50 million, this is your life's work and it's what you've accumulated and you have certain goals for that after you're gone. And that's why people tend to be very particular, or at least some people tend to be very particular about where their assets go, when and how. Um, So understanding that even if someone's making a request that seems unreasonable, it can be more reasonable or uh, easier to comprehend based on the fact that they've worked their whole lives to get here. Um, I think that uh, with certain clients too, you have to understand that they're not necessarily used to being told what they can do with their assets, especially when they've built it from the ground up. And I know that the Beastie Boys didn't come from nothing, but they certainly built an unexpected movie, uh, music rather, empire. Um, I think that what you need to do with clients like that is be very deliberate in explaining to them the unintended consequences of what they want um, and what litigation can mean for an estate. It's not $20,000 down the drain and a few weeks wasted. It can, in certain cases, it has completely dissipated an estate and prevented the heirs, you know, your children and your wife and whomever from getting your assets. Um, I think it's just always important to think things over too. So it's not that an issue of copyright, the music and artistic property couldn't be included in Adam Yauch's will. Um, It reads to me, and again, I wasn't there, of course, when it was uh, executed, but it reads to me like something that was drafted before the fact. Adam sat down to sign it. I believe this clause was on the last page. He saw it and he said, oh, I want to add something here. And he may or may not have been sick when it was executed. But, uh, you know, that always adds a little pressure when someone is going on a dangerous assignment or when someone is sick or when someone is quite old. You as their advisor want them to sign their will and you don't want to delay it. So if this little snafu came up, oh, wait, I want to add this thing. I think that what would have been best was, all right, let's sign what you have now. And let us think about this because publicity rights, you may or may not know, are governed by state law. And Adam Yauch happened to be living in New York. He died in New York. Um, New York respects publicity rights and they respect publicity rights after death, unlike some other states. But copyright is federal law. And whenever you incorporate copyright into a will, you're going to want to find out who owns that copyright. Um, Do they own it with someone else? And a lot of people who come to me and do own copyrights 
don't mention that they own it with someone else, that they might not have power of disposition over it. That's really important to research that before the fact. Um, it's also really important to get an attorney on board as a trust and estates attorney who understands federal copyright law before you start putting limitations on it. Because you don't want to bother drafting something that's not going to hold up. It's not good for the client. It's not good for the estate because it opens it up to costly litigation. And it's not good for you as the drafter because then you've created something that doesn't work. You've failed in your purpose. So client management is so important because you have to protect that client after their death. And they, I think, can be better managed when they understand that, that it's for them that you're doing this. And that while they know very well what they want to happen to their assets, you know very well how an estate plan can be thrown off course and how to prevent that. So you need to take the time. And ultimately what should have happened with Adam Young's will, in my opinion, was that it should have been signed without that handwritten addition. And then a month or two later, when proper research was completed, a new will should have been signed involving whatever appropriate copyright protections could have been written into it. Yeah, I mean, it certainly should set off alarm bells for any estate planning attorney. Just when you see both copyright law and sort of this personal image stuff in the very same mm -hmm. sentence, that's sort of the legal equivalent of mixing metaphors where it's just like, okay, well, these things need to be separate and, and have their own, mm -hmm. be addressed on their own merits. Um, there's also some indication, look, having looked at the rest of the will, there's some other weird stuff in there that maybe indicated that he was a, a, had good clarity on certain points and not such great clarity on other points. Uh, him and his wife kind of came up with a, a bit of a weird way of deciding this didn't actually didn't end up coming up, but deciding who would have their take care of their daughter if they were both involved in a simultaneous death. The simultaneous mm -hmm. deaths are a thing that's often covered in wills as they should be. Um, but usually it's sort of, you know, our grandparents got them or it's, it's an agreement. Uh, it seemed like they couldn't really figure that part out. So they came up with this thing where if they both died on an odd day, his parents would get them. And if they both died on an even day, her parents would get the daughter. And, Seeing that thing, and which was just reeks of indecision, mm -hmm. and seeing this clause, which is, you know, he felt strong enough about to write with his own hand, um, really should indicate, you know, sort of the difficulty of a client like this, that there are certain things that a client may be just adamant about, and there are certain maybe even more important things mm -hmm. that, you know, thankfully didn't come up here because his wife, you know, survived him, but that, you know, they maybe hadn't thought about or hadn't really been hashed out in, in the way that they should be. Right. Or they hadn't thought about how is this going to look in reality if it has to be implemented. Um, and that's another issue when people are dealing with who's going to be the guardian for their children. They don't want legal advice. Um, but sometimes they need to play the tape through and be reminded or be made aware of the fact that there are cases where you appoint um, guardians for your children and it doesn't work out. And therefore there's family court litigation. Um, for example, you can appoint, you know, my sister and her husband will be the uh, guardians for my children. And five years later, I pass away and my sister and her husband have gotten divorced. Well, do I necessarily want the guy who was married to my sister for two years to have a some sort of a claim in family court that he should be a co-guardian or be appointed guardian of my children? No. But people want to do things like that all the time. Because they're not thinking or they're not playing through the tape. Um, and they don't want to be told, you know, for whatever reason, you can make your sister and your husband and her husband guardians of your children. 
but make it clear what's going to happen in the case of divorce, separation, in the case of, you know, ongoing illness for either one of them. Uh, and same thing with, you know, my parents or her parents. Some, some consideration, I think, should have been given there to what state might the parents be in when they do have to take over or they do have to become guardian. Yeah, these things, I think it's not just your issues of when you're talking about children. It's kind of everything when someone comes into work on their estate plan, right? Like, even if they're not ill or imminently, you know, as most aren't, um, it's just kind of a lot to reckon with. And in your head, you can kind of, you know, it's fine to say, like, oh, I'm going to go work on my will with my estate planning attorney and to have it on the books and to walk in for the appointment. But once you're there actually sifting through the nuts and bolts of your sort of afterlife, that's really intense, um, no matter how sort of young or healthy you are, that that's a lot to deal with. And I mean, in my experience in, in drafting wills, it's, it's a, it's real easy to get them to draft it and then real hard to get them to sign it. Um, and that's kind of indicative of, of what goes on that, that these are, you know, you're, you're, you know, death and taxes, right? You're literally right. reckoning with you know death. And then people don't realize that until they're sort of in it and they kind of lose their ability to sort of, like you said, run through the tape, um, because it's just too much for them. Right. Yeah, I, people are dealing with their own mortality here, and that's that's also always hard. And um, you know, part of why appointing a guardian can be hard is it's horrible for people to think about if something happens to both of us, where are our kids going to be? Um, another thing, as an estate planner, it's an interesting area of law because it requires some amount of compassion and understanding, even when someone might be really demanding and difficult, because even very high net worth people who are very busy and important with their jobs, have emotions around death and around what's going to happen to my kids or what's going to happen to my pet, what's going to happen to my spouse or partner, or the friends that I'm leaving behind. Um, and that's always going to be there, more so, I think, than in you know, tax law or litigation, if it's not a, a personal litigation. Um, those personal feelings might not come up as much, but they're always going to be there. And often they're just under the surface in estate planning, um, so I think as estate planners, we have to always be cognizant of them because our clients may not understand that they're becoming emotional in something that unfortunately needs to be approached in a somewhat business-like manner. It also doesn't help that, especially when you're dealing with sort of first-generation wealth creators. Mm -hmm. uh, these are people who sort of have devoted their entire lives to being masters of their own destiny in a mm -hmm. way. Um, and even though when you're crafting a will, you're... you're by its nature, taking control of what happens in the future, they're still, that's not what they're used to. It's still an intense loss of control. Mm -hmm. So in addition to having to deal with, with the specter of death and mortality, there's also just this sort of control aspect that they're so used to having such tight control. Over mm -hmm. It's kind of why a lot of times there's a, a trouble in, in passing on a family business from the first right. generation to the second generation. Because, you know, the dad who built it is 90 and can't really do a good job anymore, but that he can't see that. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's his whole life has been devoted to it. And then Will's and estate plans can kind of be the same way for certain clients who really, um, it's not that they're spoiled or anything. It's just that they've, they're successful because they have this certain outlook on things mm -hmm. and because they've maintained this control. And now you're sort of, they're having the idea of you have to kind of explain to them that, okay, well, you know, you have to give some of that up. Right. You know, I think a good estate planner will let their client stay in the driver's seat, stay in control. Um, but also find a way to explain and just reasonably to their client how they must work to bring that client's wishes to fruition. So sometimes you'll just get 
what's more or less a term sheet up front from the client. What do I want to happen? Without saying, how am I going to write this into my will or other estate planning document? Just what exactly do you want to happen? And it, it can be unusual. Um, and it can be something that isn't dealt with a lot. And you can find a creative solution to how you can meet your ethical and professional obligations as an attorney while still keeping your client in control because ultimately their kids it's and it's their money and it's their property that they're you know appointing a guardian for or leaving to other people so they need to have that control and there's nothing wrong with that um and it's just a matter of how how thoughtful can you be in explaining why certain things are done in certain ways or why you know you don't want to um, tie an executor's hands when it comes to dealing with your wealth. You need to pick an executor that you can trust. Um, and once you do pick an executor that you can trust, you, you have to give them the flexibility that they need, not just to administer your estate in a year, but to administer it in 20 years or 40 years, because you can't guarantee that anyone's going to update their will. Uh, and many people sign when they're 30, 40 years old and you just have to be able to create a flexible enough document that it's going to apply for the rest of their lives. Yeah. It's, this idea of, of planning being a team sport is really important. Um, we talk about, I talk about multidisciplinary teams a lot just by my very nature of my job being a, a lawyer who writes a lot of content for financial advisors. Um, but you know, whether you're a financial advisor or an estate planning attorney, you're kind of when you're, you're dealing with a, a plan, your client undeniably knows what's best for them. You can't match that knowledge. You need that knowledge. Mm -hmm. But they're forced to work in a system that they likely don't know anything about and that you are the expert on. Mm -hmm. So that puts you on somewhat equal footing, even though it's just, you know, we're a service industry and, and they are paying you to this job and they can fire you. Yeah. Um, you have to be willing to a certain extent to push back and assert, you know, that like, yes, you know what's best for you, but I know how that is actually going to, the way to make that actually happen. Right. And that these are two equally important things. Sure. Um, and I think when that comes up, I just have to go back to their overarching goals. And that's why it's great up front before I start drafting a will to ask, what is it that you want? So if they tell me, oh, no, I don't want my executor to have um, power of investment or power to make investment decisions. I've already invested everything how I want it to be invested. Uh, you can push back there and say, well, you know, your spouse or your partner might not be getting the greatest return in that case. Or they might be uh, exposed to far greater tax liability in that case. And usually when you can get to that point, they realize that it's not ultimately what they want. Is to They don't ultimately want to restrict their executor. They think they've made great investment decisions, and often they probably have. But markets change, and, and uh, the tax code changes, and uh, other circumstances including the financial or other circumstances of your beneficiaries can change. Uh, and that's why we try to write in certain flexibility and it's sort of being penny wise and dollar stupid. Uh, and just to use a saying um, to create certain restrictions that aren't going to ultimately be to the greatest benefit of your estate and your beneficiaries. And these, these restrictions are sort of what we attorneys call the, the dead hand um, sort of reaching into the future to try to, you know, maintain that control they once had to still kind of manipulate how things go. And they can kind of come up in a lot of ways. They can be as simple as sort of my executor can and can't do this. And you'll see such thing also sort of, you know, uh, things like 
oh, you know, my son only gets this if he marries a Catholic mm. or, you know, or if, you know, he'll get this if he goes, if he graduates from Yale Law School exactly. And, you know, and, and there's any number of ways that clients can try to sort of reach into the future and likely will. Um, and it's kind of the attorney's job to, to see which ones of those are sort of harmless and that, you know, it's, the client will be okay with, you know, keeping and it's no harm, no foul, and which ones are going to be actively disruptive to the family and the estate plan. Sure. And especially when certain restrictions or when a client wants to put certain restrictions on one beneficiary and not the others. And that's where you can get into a case of litigation. um, If someone feels that they've been treated unfairly. Um, And I think also you have to leave room for sort of changing mores or changing society within your will when you make an estate plan. Um, Ultimately, of course, clients can restrict who's going to be getting their assets based on, uh, you know, certain qualities or certain achievements. But um, I think you always want to make sure that they're leaving something in there, an opportunity for everyone to be treated fairly. Yeah. I think some clients can have a tendency to look at this as like their last word. <laughs> I don't know if there are sports fans amongst our listeners, but sort of a Michael J- or Michael Jordan's Hall of Fame inductance speech is sort of the ultimate example of this, where he sort of had this, this is like his last big, a platform to speak and he, he was supposed to be an honor but he kind of just took the whole time to just crap on all the people who didn't believe in him and just sat there for half an hour just like this guy I hate him you are terrible you didn't believe in me and there can kind of be a, a tendency for certain families to to treat their wills and estate plans as sort of uh okay well now it's time for my airing of grievances and my final word on how i feel about all of these relatives um and while that can be in the moment sort of i guess therapeutic <laughs> For the clients, in a way, is satisfying. Um, it's really not a good idea, and is the sort of thing that you know the, the worse you treat, like there, there are there are proper and improper ways to treat someone poorly in your mm-hmm. will, um, and so that's another area where you maybe have to manage uh, emotions and expectations. Sure, and it just comes down to getting. I think it's always helpful to know where someone's coming from. So, getting to what is their fear if someone's given assets outright or you know, what is their fear if someone isn't going to graduate from such and such school or doesn't achieve such and such in life? You know, what's the worry there? Is the worry that if they get money outright, they're going to squander it? And, you know, then we can address that from a reasonable estate planning perspective. Um, Is the consideration that someone's going to enter into a marriage with someone who doesn't love them or who's ultimately in it for their inheritance? Well, then we can plan from that. But I think it's always really important to know not just what the client wants, but especially when it's a difficult to achieve goal, why do they want it? And then sometimes you can come up with something that is a bit more practical for them while still uh, ultimately carrying out their wishes. Well, we're all out of time. Thanks so much for joining us, Jackie. This has been a real interesting kind of a went above and beyond what I expected to talk about today, but that's always fantastic. Thanks for Um, having me. Do you have uh, an email address or anything you want to give out for anyone who wants to, uh, if they have any questions about what we talked about today? Sure, of course. My email address is jbevilacqua at my firm, katskycorins.com. I'd be happy to talk to anyone who's looking for an estate plan or just has any questions about what we've spoken about today. Thanks so much, Jackie. And uh, for everyone, we'll see you in a couple of weeks, or I guess hear me in a couple of weeks on the next episode of the Dead Celebrity Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Dead Celebrity Podcast. Click the subscribe button below to become notified when new episodes become available.
The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of InformaWealthManagement.com. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. Support for today's podcast is brought to you by FS Investments. At FS Investments, smart never settles, especially when it comes to helping investors find income in a low-yielding and volatile market. Let FS Investments help you access alternative sources of income and growth for your investors. Visit fsinvestments.com slash deadcelebrities to help your clients achieve their financial goals. Ask your advisor about FS Investments, including any potential risks. This is not an offer to buy security.